Everybody, that was Taichi Mukai. I'm Bo Ranstall, and this is Hero Hero Go Show. Um, hey, so we've been away. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, we are switching over to a, uh, a monthly format, and uh, I think we're going to be able to put out shows on the regular along with a few bonus shows along the way. So, um, yeah, look for uh, Hero Hero Go Show dropping uh at the end of every month and uh we might formalize a date or something like that we'll see anyway doesn't matter um so uh thanks for everyone uh for listening to the previous shows and uh i i feel like the return needed something special and as a result uh i i wanted to do a movie that was uh iconic And in that regard, uh, there is nothing in my mind more iconic when it comes to uh, Japanese cinema in particular, and my own love of of monster movies and whatnot, uh, than Godzilla. So that's what we're doing, and we're not going to screw around. Uh, Let's get right to it. This is uh, 1954's original nuclear parable by way of giant monster. Uh, Gojira, a.k.a. Godzilla, um, however you want to describe it, I'm fine with. Uh, I prefer Godzilla because it's what I grew up with. Um, and prior to Godzilla, Japan had never really entered the world of kaiju films. Um, the way this all started was there was a producer at Toho Studios, a guy named Tomoyuki Tanaka, uh, and he had seen the original King Kong and movies like The Beast from 20,000 20, Fathoms. And those movies had done super well uh, at the box office. And uh, Tanaka was also a fan of these movies. And he thought that Toho, uh, the studio he worked for, uh, could do their own monster movie. And it was Tanaka who originally conceived of Godzilla. And the idea was fueled by those American movies, you know, King Kong and uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And there was also an incident called the Daigo Fukuryu Maru Fishing Boat Incident. Now, the Daigo Fukuryu Maru, or the Lucky Dragon, was a fishing boat near the Marshall Islands in March of 1954, outside of the defined, quote, danger zone, of the the Bikini Islands nuclear testing grounds, and the nuclear test at this time uh, was referred to as the Ca- the Castle Bravo nuclear test, which was detonated as the Daigo Fukuryu Maru fished miles away. The detonation, though, was larger than the U.S. expected, and fallout rained down on the fishermen and their vessel as they hurried to collect their fishing gear uh, and get all their stuff before they returned to port. As they did, this fine white ash fell on the men in their boat. And one even licked the, the ash and said it was, it was tasteless and gritty. Like, they, they had no idea what this was. But what it was, was irradiated ash from the coral of the Bikini Islands, turned to dust... 
and this fateful shift of wind sends the fallout to come down on the Daigo Fukuryu Maru and other fishing vessels. They weren't the only one, but uh, but certainly the most famous. And and so the ship returns to port, and the effects uh, of their exposure to radiation was already affecting the crew. Um, there were 23 men aboard the vessel. They're all taken to local hospitals. And so when Japanese officials reached out to contact the United States for aid, because they had an expert come in who said, hey, these guys have radiation poisoning. And so they contact the United States and world-class asshole and head of the Atomic Energy Commission at the time, a guy named Louis Strauss, denied that the men were affected by radiation at all. Like he had all kinds of crazy excuses, anything other than the fact that the United States had detonated a bomb that was larger than the danger zone that they had defined. So the big U.S. concern was that if they told precisely what kind of radiation had affected these men, then you could sort of reverse engineer what type of enriched you know, uranium or plutonium or whatever that they were using. So the U.S. doesn't want to tip their hand, uh, so they just continue to deny and deny and deny so that they don't give an edge to the Soviets who were busy trying to build a nuclear weapon of their own. So this combination of paranoia and national interest and old-fashioned douchebaggery led to the death of Radio Man for the uh, Daigo Kuryu Maru. Um, and uh, it's a guy named Aikichi Kuboyama. And in September of 1954, uh, Aikichi Kuboyama became the first official victim of a hydrogen bomb. Uh, dying from the fallout, he had some other complications with his health, but... Um, the radiation is what killed him. And before his death, he said, I pray that I'm the last victim of a hydrogen or atom bomb. Um, unfortunately, that is, is certainly not the case. I mean, look at uh, the entire cast of that John Wayne Genghis Khan movie. But at any rate, uh, only later, after months of denial that the nuclear test had caused any issues at all, did the United States ever pay... Kubayama's wife and children, which was the equivalent of about $2,800 for the mistake that ended this man's life. Um, so the, the, this event, and, and there was ensuing panic around it. Like when people heard about this in Japan, keep in mind this is a country that had just had two atom bombs dropped on it, you know, less than 10 years before. And this was an extension itself of the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that panic became characteristic of Japan at the time. It was an era of enormous like anti-nuclear and anti-hydrogen bomb protests. Uh, there was a sense that radiation had become this invisible boogeyman. And the survivors of the, the Daigo Fuku Ryu Maru were ostracized. Uh, because they, you know, at the time, people weren't sure what radiation sickness was, and there was a lot of bad information out there. And people thought it was communicable that if you hung out with someone who was suffering from radiation sickness, then you could catch it. And many ended up leaving their hometowns for a new start, uh, where their names could not be linked to that tragedy. And while many of the fishermen did live to ripe old ages, there is no question that many members of the crew suffered greatly due to that exposure. So, in light of this near-frenzy in society regarding nuclear and atomic energy, our old pal Tanaka decided that this atomic hysteria was the perfect vehicle for his monster, a creature born of atomic fire and headed straight for Tokyo Bay. And, and Tanaka himself said, 
The theme of the film from the beginning was the terror of the bomb. Mankind had created the bomb, and now nature was going to take revenge on mankind. And yet, audiences didn't really see Godzilla as just a villain, though he certainly was this chaotic force of nature. And in a way, audiences identified with Godzilla because he, too, was a victim of nuclear testing, just like the fishermen of the Daiko Fukuryu Maru. And so... Toho was originally slated to produce a movie in partnership with the Indonesian government. Uh, it was entitled Eko no Kagi Ni, or In the Shadow of Glory. And it was this movie about uh, sort of the, the uh, Japanese uh, treatment of Indonesia at the time uh, during World War II. And the aftermath of that, it was like real heavy kind of drama thing. And unfortunately... Indonesia was eaten up with anti-Japanese sentiment following World War II uh, because of some of the treatment of, of Japan. And, and um, at any rate, so the, Indonesia denies the work visa uh, visas for the producers and the crew. So Tanaka now has no movie. And he went to Indonesia, met with the Indonesian producers. They said, look, we're not, we can't do this. We cannot bring... A Japanese film crew into this country right now under these conditions. So uh, he books his return flight, heads back with bad news, but it's on the flight that he writes a rough outline for his vision of this film, this giant monster movie he wants to do, which he called The Giant Monster from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That is the original title of Godzilla, according to this outline, which I think is kind of rad. So he, he uh, writes this outline for the giant monster from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He goes to a guy not named Iwao Mori, who was an executive producer at Toho, and then consults a guy named Iji Subu... Oh, I'm going to butcher this one. Iji Suburea, uh, who was an effects guy, and he had signed on. So at that point, the project's a go. Uh, they pick Ashiro Honda to direct the film, and they give the project the name Project G, G for Giant, uh, a green light. And they say, this is now ready for a script, <laughs> which is how it was done. And so the, the effects head, A.J. Suburaya, Raya, sorry, A.J. Suburaya, um, he submits his own outline for the movie from a, a movie idea he'd had years before about like this giant octopus attacking ships in the Indian Ocean. So uh, th they pull a little bit from that, and in then May of '54, Takana hires a science fiction writer named Shigeru Kayama to flesh out the story. And in the original version, Kayama makes the the prominent science scientist Yamane in the movie is this, like, cape-wearing European guy. And Godzilla was a lot more beast-like. He was a lot more like Kong, in that he would just come ashore to eat people and then swipe a couple of ladies, because uh, he was a little amorous like King Kong was. Uh, he, of course, was a source for Godzilla. So, um, Ashira Honda, uh, the director, and a guy named Takeo Murata locked themselves into a Japanese inn, and they complete the, the final script for Godzilla in about 11 days, shaping the movie into what it is today. And, and speaking of what that movie is, if you've never seen it, there is an American version of this film.
called Godzilla King of the Monsters, and we'll get into that in a minute. But if you've never seen the original Godzilla, um, I, I can't recommend it enough. It is a surprisingly heavy, high-minded, philosophical, fun, and at times heart-wrenching film that has very little to do with later films where it was, you know, Godzilla v. whomever. So what we're going to do now, let's check in with our resident Godzilla expert, uh, Court Psyops from Cinema Psyops, um, for a discussion of this movie. And boy, we get into so, so much more. Uh, so here it is, my uh, discussion with Court Psyops uh, on 1954's Godzilla. Hey, folks. Uh, he says, introducing the segment. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, Gojira, Godzilla. Uh, either or is fine by me. Um, it is, I mean, technically it's Gojira, but kind of who cares? You know, <laughs> this is one of the few cases where I'm like, eh, you know, Godzilla is, is six and one. Um, I mean, it, like the translation from the original Japanese edition is Godzilla. So let's just run with it. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, my guest is Court of Court Psyops. And <laughs> I'm of me. Yeah, of you. I've, I've spawned myself. <laughs> of, uh, uh, yeah, well, all right. So uh, I, you know, obviously mentioned the podcast earlier. Why don't you tell someone, since you're here in person and not relying on me to do it, Tell uh, people a little bit about the podcast you do and uh, and and why the hell you do it. Well, Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast, and we're kind of the bad boys of Legion podcast. We we got invited in and, you know... <laughs> kind of this ain't your mama's podcast. Yeah, kind of. Uh, we, we got invited in. You let us into your warm podcast network home, and the very first thing we did was take a shit in the room of the, the most popular podcast that was also staying there. And <laughs> we've since made peace and everybody's all happy and back in love and, and ready to go. But we, we kind of came out swinging and it was like a prison rules where we just came in and said, we're the daddy. <laughs> we tried to be that way. Sure. Sure. But, you know, and I mean, you know, we, we also had a little bit of a spat with the whole garbage people thing, but we've all made up since then and we're all good now. <laughs> I, I do like to think of the entire network as essentially one giant prison yard. Ideally. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, we're, we're doing okay now. I think, uh, I think we've kind of established our, our place in the pecking order. And I think, uh, you know, fear of uh, sexual assault on a daily basis has gone down significantly, at least outside of other shows coming after us. So that's a good thing for now, for now. I mean, it, it, we'll, we'll see what happens when the next show comes on and how that shakes up the hierarchy. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, thanks for being here because, uh, we were talking about uh, the King of Monsters, as the Americanized version has told us. Uh, it's Godzilla, man. It's OG, straight up out of Tokyo Bay. I, now, I'm, now I've just got, like, uh, Easy E running <laughs> through my head. Like, I'm trying to... I, I, I'll make that work later. Uh, but <laughs> straight out of Tokyo Bay, a, a, a crazy Jurassic beast named Godzilla. Um... When so, were you a, a Godzilla kid? Were Godzilla movies a thing for you? 
Oh, yeah. Actually, my very first Godzilla film I can trace back to when I was in preschool, actually. Um, it played on one of the local networks uh, when I was a kid. It was like over-the-air type broadcast. And I want to think it was like an NBC or an ABC one uh, that this happened in. And it might have even been, I think, possibly the one that at one point in time, uh, I think John Belushi was hosting it in a Godzilla suit or something like that, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, if if my memory serves correctly and it wasn't just all mixed up from stuff that I saw later on or, you know, bootleg tapes and things. But the one that I had watched, the very first one was Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, a.k.a. Godzilla versus Ebra. I saw that as a kid. And I think that kind of marked me for life. Uh, I now have an obsessive love of surf rock and giant monsters smashing shit <laughs> ever since then. Um, and upon seeing that one, I went out of my way to try and find all of the other ones and I didn't actually see the, well, obviously the original original without, you know, having Raymond Burr superimposed over everything until much later in life, like probably 13 or 14. I think I finally saw that one. And when I saw that one for the first time, that was on monster vision with Joe Bob Briggs, <laughs> like in his first start of his run. So maybe that would have been closer to like 15 was the first time I sat down and watched that one. But I had, sought out all of the other ones and anytime anything Godzilla was on cable uh, I think another time was a super scary Saturday that was hosted by Grandpa Lewis that was on TBS I don't know if you had ever seen that or were aware that that existed I, I knew of it I don't think I ever saw it though I was the perfect age when that came on because it was like 8 or 9 or whatever and he had a Godzilla marathon at one point and uh, <laughs> that Godzilla marathon was actually um, I think it was uh, some of the worst ones, though, because they were like in the public domain. It was like the, the son of Godzilla or Godzilla on Monster Island, the one where the kid hallucinates all this stuff. And, <laughs> and I don't know. Is that? Yeah. Is that Monster Island? Or I know it's uh, Godzilla now. Yeah. It, it uh, Actually, I think after watching this movie, I, my plan is for every episode moving forward to just check in on the Godzilla series. <laughs> and just watch one of these a month uh because like what better way to spend a random evening than hey what's the next in the Godzilla series yeah uh and also just to uh, reinforce your memory a bit uh i found the mention here so 1977 is when uh nbc nationally aired Godzilla versus Megalon Okay, then that wasn't the one that I saw, but that and, was the But it did have John Belushi in a Godzilla suit introducing okay. the film. Somebody had a bootleg VHS that they taped off of TV in the late 70s for me with that. As a kid, like one of my dad's friends gave that to me that he had that, and I watched that one a lot. So the one that I saw was just a local broadcast of I know it was Godzilla versus the Sea Monster because like I said it's ingrained in my brain. That's where you first see the giant cockroaches that he battles, the Kamarakas or whatever. Yeah. And then everybody shits on Ebra, but Ebra's a pretty good villain. I mean, he's a giant freaking lobster. <laughs> you know, those those pinchers of power are going to get at you whether you want them to or not. That, yeah, that that one's pretty good. My first was uh, Smog Monster, a.k.a. Uh, Better Gone. <laughs> To the uh, save the Earth, save save the Earth. <laughs> yeah, it, that's the one that has a groovy '60s breakdown in the middle. Um, 
animation sequences that are just yeah. so trippy. Yeah. And and so that was my introduction to Godzilla, which is not a typical Godzilla film. Uh, it, I mean, certainly shares plenty of DNA because most of the movies at heart are, hey, uh, a monster shows up. Aw, shit. Here comes Godzilla to save the day. But in so doing is going to wreck some shit. And and I and I think even in the later films, what I like about Godzilla as a character or as an entity is that even when he's on the right side of things, he's still going to fuck up a lot of the city. There's just no getting around it. He's never going to stand on the shores of Tokyo and say, no building shall fall. <laughs> it's it, like... The job's going to get done, but it's going to cost billions of dollars to rebuild. Well, and even like some of the later Godzillas, I'm I'm a huge Godzilla fanatic. I've been watching them since I was a kid, obviously. And not too long ago, within like the last two or three years, on a Labor Day weekend, my wife went out of town to visit some family, and it was just me. And I had procured every Godzilla film from Toho that had ever been made. And I watched them in order of release. Like over the course of that weekend, I'd basically watch him till I got too tired to stay awake, fall asleep immediately upon waking up and, and getting some breakfast, go right into watching some more and only breaking for meals and bathroom and stuff. And it was an amazing nerd weekend of just straight up Godzilla. <laughs> I went all the way up to like the Godzilla Millennial series too, or the Millennium series uh, in the 2000s. And, and what I noticed was Godzilla's at his best when he's an anti hero where he doesn't necessarily like we're ants to him he doesn't care about people he doesn't care about our buildings he doesn't understand any of that he just basically hates monsters more than he hates people so if monsters right. are destroying cities he's not there to save us he's just there to kill that monster because this is his territory and you're in his way yeah yeah it, it's right it's territoriality it's this is my place and no no other monster dare uh challenge me and yeah. Don't you step on that building. That's my job. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You can't make fun of him. We can make fun of him kind of thing. Um, so getting back to the original, the, the so, you know, as much fun as all those are, and, and they are, like all the Godzilla v. whomever stuff is ridiculous fun. Uh, I still say that Destroy All Monsters, one of the greatest films ever made, uh, that movie gives you everything you want uh, out of a movie like that, and and I adore it. Um, I'm even okay with the fact that they're doing a big-budget American version of it. I want to see that. Um, you tell me Godzilla and King Kong are going to fight, you've sold a ticket. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, as uh, long as it's not Roland Emmerich and the Matthew Broderick Americanized Godzilla, I'm good. The last one, the 2014 one, had some genuinely good moments. Yeah, I mean, the the final, like, him pulling open the the other monster's jaws to breathe atomic fire down its throat is one of the great Godzilla moments of all time. Uh, uh, I was five years old watching that, and when that happened, I was punching the air and screaming yes like a little kid. Yeah. In, in an IMAX 3D theater. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. And I, and I thought Skull Island is, is good, dumb fun. And now that we've established that and we're going to have the Godzilla v. King Kong film, which, of course, is going to end with them joining forces to fight some other threat. So, uh, 
I, I don't know what that other threat is going to be. Is it going to be Ghidorah? Is it going to be Rodan? But they've already said we're going to do a Destroy All Monsters after that, which is definitely going to have Mothra. And I don't know why I launched on that tangent other than to say uh, we live in a golden age, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Where where the words, hey, Mothra is going to be in a new movie uh, is a true thing. And that's my Star Wars, goddammit. That's my Death Star, is two little Japanese girls singing to Mothra. <laughs> I was never a huge Mothra fan, because I always thought he was kind of a lazy kaiju. And they pray to him, and they sing to him, and they nurture him, and they do, or her, because sometimes she lays eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I think it's, I, I feel like Mothra's a she. Yeah. But the problem that I have is, like, particularly, uh, like, in Godzilla vs. Ebra, the very first one that I saw, Mothra was in that. And spends most of the movie just kind of huddling down and chilling on his own island and letting people worship him. And it does, not until like the very last part of the film, and he just ends up being like a medevac uh, a escape helicopter for like evacuation of people on the island about to explode. <laughs> yeah, I, and maybe that's what I appreciate most about Mothra. It's what I relate to, <laughs> is that you've really got to make a compelling argument to get Mothra to do anything. Yeah, and, and rightfully so, because... I mean, she's been spoiled her entire existence and all of her rebirths because she's got a whole island of people worshiping her and telling her how wonderful she is. She's basically not even just a lazy kaiju. She's more like the diva of the kaijus. She's essentially the Mariah Carey of the kaiju world. Right. Only it's like, Mothra, don't get out of bed for less than Mecha Godzilla. Okay. <laughs> right. That that leads us to like Tokyo SOS right there. <laughs> uh so, uh, but yeah, all right. So point being before all of that stuff, before it got kind of silly and, and, and fun in a very campy kind of way, but uh, you know, clearly we both adore those movies, but the original Godzilla is an honest to goodness for realsies serious movie. It's a straight up horror flick too. I mean, Godzilla is the destroyer of worlds in this he's an unstoppable force that just wreaks havoc everywhere he shows up yeah uh and all right so we're gonna kind of roll through the plot here i've made my notes court um we're just gonna run through the chronology of this film and and pause uh where necessary to highlight how awesome this movie is because it is you know the the caveat up front is Yes, these effects are clearly dated. Yes, it's a guy in a suit. Yes, it's a, a lot of model work. But it's also stop motion, and it's also composite shots. Like, this movie was aiming for greatness and and was doing everything uh, in its power to, to, if not be cutting edge visually, present all the... Like, not be afraid to show the special effects and especially now on Blu-ray and Criterion, uh, the Criterion edition is what I watch and you can see, you know, all the fishing line for the missiles on the jets and all that kind of stuff. It, and it feels quaint, but in the service of this story, I think the weight is still there. Um, and particularly some of the scenes we'll talk about later when Godzilla just loses his shit. <laughs> and destroys uh, Tokyo proper. Um, but to start with, the movie just begins with the banging of drums. 
uh, just percussion, and I like it. I like a movie that's like, hey, get ready to watch a goddamn movie. Um, I'm and, <laughs> yeah, right. And then the we get the Godzilla roar right over the credits. No fucking around. Mm, love this. <laughs> love this movie. So some dudes are chilling on a fishing boat, and they see something churning in the water. And then a bright light consumes them. And uh, and the ship is on fire. Some dudes send a distress signal, but the ship goes down. Fortunately, the message is received on the mainland that, hey, some shit has gone down in the water. Now, we don't see Godzilla at this point, but we do see the atomic breath for the first time, which is basically somebody turning on a fire extinguisher and then a big light. <laughs> but but it works. I it, Hey. It conveyed the message it has to convey. The very uh, first one kind of looks like a blast of a mushroom cloud, too. Do you notice how it goes out more at the bot? At the when it comes up out of the water, it looks like a mushroom cloud when that ship just first disappears. Yeah, I mean, we'll get in to <laughs> yeah, right. I, <laughs> I don't want to dig in too deep. I just wanted to point that that was there. Yes, okay. It's the first time that you see it like that, and and it's worth mentioning that uh, the director Honda here. Um, had seen, I think it was the Nagasaki blast that he saw firsthand and was also witness. He had served in China in world war two and, and, uh, had seen the results of the firebombing in Japan. Um, and as well as the, the, the blast of the Nagasaki or Hiroshima, I can't remember which, but it was one of the two that he, he saw his own self. And, this movie is such a complicated uh, film when it comes to that stuff. Because on the one hand, it is very clearly an anti-nuclear bomb film. You know, like Godzilla, we'll get, you know, we'll get to the plot point. But Godzilla was released by H-bomb testing. He is chock full of radiation. Uh, radiation uh, follows in his wake. Like, this is a nuclear war parable. But also, there is a lot of stuff in this movie about, I think, uh, Japan's own complicated relationship with World War II and the bomb. And uh, on the one hand, it's, you know, the force of nature rolling in, and, and uh, which is how many of the Japanese, just good old-fashioned normal Japanese people who aren't necessarily part of the war effort kind of saw World War II as just this thing that happened all of a sudden the country was forever changed. Um, but also, th there are moments in the film that show, portray the Japanese as victims, but also there is a sense of, well, if we're not careful, this is how we're going to end up again. That, that maybe there is an element that we were asking for it. Um, it, it's all very interesting. And a lot of the, there's another film, uh, I'll mention it in the, uh, um, more informational segment. And I can't think of the name now. Tales of Igatsu, something like that, that also, uh, came out about the same time as Godzilla and, uh, and features a lot of the same kind of meditative look at, uh, at, at the bombing. But anyway. We'll get to that. It'll get heavy in a second. First, let's get some fun shit out of the way. <laughs> um, so uh, they call Ogata, who is uh, a salvage guy. Um, 
and his girlfriend is Amiko. And he and Amiko are in love. Um, they they well freaking couple too. They really are. And in fact, in the opening scene, he's like, "Hey, there's a ship that's lost. I got to go uh, check into this shit." And Amiko is like, "Hey, we were gonna go see the you know what was it the Hungarian string quartet. Are you sure you don't want to go?" And he's like, "No, no, no, go without me." And it's like, what a what a great couple going to see a string quartet together. Jeez, a Pete. Probably not his idea. He was probably happy to get that phone call, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, he's probably like, um, I just totally weaseled out of this. It was like that. And then afterwards, it was a wine and cheese tasting party. Right. Yeah. He was like, can you believe Amiko was going to drag me this string quartet? It's like her and her friends decided they were going to do this. And all the other girls didn't bring their bows because they didn't have one because this is the kind of thing they like to do. <laughs> right. Right. Like. Janice is trying to get Amiko to dump Agata just so that they can be back to their old group again. Yeah, when it was it's, just the girls and there were no men complicating things, right? <laughs> right, right. Agata's fine. Treats are good. But uh, just Janice is the worst. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Janice. Leave him alone. They're a happy couple. <laughs> uh, the head of this, like, South Seas uh, uh, fishing group or whatever, the... the uh, the people what own the boats uh, show up, and uh, the Eko Maru is the name of the boat. Um, not to be confused, of course, with the Kobayashi Maru. I'm glad you jumped on that because I was about to do it. <laughs> yeah, it has to be said. Uh, but the Eko Maru uh, is the boat what got burned up by Godzilla. And um, they're saying, hey, we've got a ship nearby, and they're going to go investigate. And sure enough, that one gets burned up. And so now the Bingo Motoru, which is a great name, because um, the name of the ship, obviously, is the Bingo Maru, <laughs> and Bingo was its name oh. Um And the Eko Maru are both now missing. And they're like, we don't even know if they're survivors, but let's now we got some helicopters going in. And let's see what happens there. And so a rescue ship finally finds three survivors and they're like, Hey, what happened? And they say, well, the water just exploded. And they're like, okay, we're going to take you to Odo Island, uh, nearby. And the, the owner of the South seas, uh, fishing, uh, ship company is like, at least for God's sakes, at least three of them made it. And then they're like, Hey, that fishing boat that found the survivors that's missing too. And it's like, well, motherfucker, we cannot get any of these folks back out of this particular area of, of water. And, and and people are starting to take notice. Now three ships have gone missing. And the the offices are being crammed with people who are like, hey, where's my husband? Where, you know, what's going on? It's the press. It's family. It's the whole deal. We got a, we got a, a honest to goodness PR mess on our hands. Uh, that of course, court least of their worries. So then we go to, uh, Odo Island and we see some people, uh, gathered on the shore. They're kind of looking for survivors, looking out over the water. And then they see, uh, somebody on a raft and, uh, it, it turns out it, it's our old pal Masaji. Um, and they're like, Hey, Masaji. What did this? And then he just passes the fuck out. Like, he's he's had a day. So, uh, elsewhere, 
some fishermen are complaining about the lack of uh, fish that they're catching. And an old man, the crazy Ralph of the Godzilla film, <laughs> is... I would is, say crazy Ralph was the old man of the Godzilla film in Friday the 13th. That Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. The, the crazy Ralph of Godzilla did it first. He did it better. Um, but yeah, he's like, uh, hey, um, it's probably Godzilla. And they're like, shut up, old man. And he's like... I'll tell you what, I should feed all you cows to Godzilla, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie. I that he re- may not say that as a threat to people when they anger me. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> and, and and so finally, Masaji is coming around, and they're interviewing him, and he's like, look, it's definitely something that's alive. And so the same reporter, not Steve, reporter Steve Martin, we'll get to him in a little bit, um, talks to crazy Ralph and uh, crazy Ralph says, well, once Godzilla has eaten all the fish, he's going to come ashore for people. And he says, you know, we used to just send ladies out on rafts and uh, to get eaten by Godzilla. And then he would leave us alone. And the dance that they are currently watching as this interview is taking place um, is uh, a dance in, in reverence to Godzilla but and it's the only thing left. They don't they don't actually send women out uh, on rafts anymore, which, from Crazy Ralph's perspective, kind of a shame. <laughs> I miss those days back when we used to sacrifice the ladies in the village. Those were the good days. We just shove them out on the waters, let the tide take them out, and then you knew you were doing something special. You don't sacrifice the women anymore. You just lose what makes our society great. Right. <laughs> there is. There are some interesting modern day political parallels. There's a wall we'll get to in a little bit um, <laughs> that I thought was pretty great. It's a uh, the more things change, the more they're exactly the same. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so. Uh, later that night, a wind is whipping up and a storm's coming in. And this is the first time where it's like, oh, we see like the model versions of some houses and you're like, oh, those are getting crushed. If it's a model, it's going down. And, uh, but it, it still all looks, uh, surprisingly good still. I think, I think the model work in, in this is, uh, is pretty good. Um, the trade in particular, I like. But anyway, I think uh, 1954, if you hold it up against even the stuff that we in America were doing in the 50s for giant monster type things, uh, it looks significantly better and more realistic. Look at the damn scene in Superman, the motion picture and anything from this film. And they're just as good as as the other. Yeah. And Uh, 20 years later, practically more. So, yeah, I totally agree with you there. It looks at least as good as some of that model work, if not better. Yeah. Uh, so Masachi's brother, Shinchiki, it runs outside after hearing some loud stomps, which you should not do. If you hear loud, repetitive loud stomping sounds that are getting closer, um, I don't know that you leave the house. Just saying. And, I mean, unless it's to get to an underground bunker not far from the house that leads deep in the earth where you may be safe. Right. And in this case, Masachi fucks up. And just walks into the path of Godzilla. And we see the house kind of crumbling. And then the last shot of the scene, we still don't see Godzilla. 
But the last shot of the scene is one of the rescue helicopters washing up on shore, which is a pretty cool scene. And then the next day, the Odo Island Petition Group shows up uh, on the mainland uh, with banners, in fairness. Uh, They came prepared. And they're there to say, like, hey, man, our houses are getting stepped on. Livestock is getting eaten. Something is eating things on Odo Island. And they're also looking at this helicopter wreckage, and they determined that the helicopters were attacked from above, which seems strange. And the people of Odo Island are like, hey, we don't want to say Godzilla, but it's probably Godzilla. And <laughs> I don't want to say it's this ancient creature that we used to worship, but it's probably this ancient creature up there that we used to worship. I'm telling you, right. gotta sacrifice them virgins again. It's the only way to be safe and make this country great. Right. The original petition was just to allow them to drop regulations on sending women out on rafts because it's and, regulations that have ruined their their part of Odo Island. Sure. Yeah. It's <laughs> once a, once more government overreach of human sacrifice. <laughs> government overreach of stopping human sacrifice. I want a uh-huh. clip of that. <laughs> I so want a clip of that. That's brilliant. And so while these Odo Island hillbillies are complaining about all their uh, cows and oxen being eaten uh, by, quote, not Godzilla. Um, <laughs> here here we have our EPA where one of the words you're not allowed to use is Godzilla. So whatever it is, it's not Godzilla. It's not right. climate you, change. <laughs> you can say fetus. <laughs> you can't say science-based, and you can't say Godzilla. Um, Paleontologist Yamane shows up, and the crowd goes wild. (laughs) Um, People love Yamane. He's like a star and shit. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like a little old man with a little beard. And uh, he says, he starts off on shaky scientific ground, because he starts off talking about yetis in the Himalayas. And everybody's like, I thought Yetis were real. <laughs> well, I mean, they are. We ju- I'm just saying if a paleontologist is like, hey, this thing we've never found, well, maybe it's like that. And <laughs> Maybe it's like this it, other thing that we can't prove doesn't exist because we could never prove that it existed in the first place. <laughs> right. It's it's the, the argument of, hey, man, it's a big-ass ocean, and we don't know much about it. And we believe... That maybe something from like some underground underground cave uh, got got stirred up. We don't know what's down there, but I believe Yamane says uh, we should have an emergency response team, and everyone applauds that too because everybody loves Yamane. Uh, at this point, Yamane is bigger than Jesus Christ. I think he's doing his greatest hits too. Where we need an emergency response team is like his free bird. Where a minute yeah. as the minute he says we need an emergency response team, they're all like, "Yeah, sing it, brother!" You know, <laughs> everyone sings along to the Yeti lines. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, and it could be just like a Yeti. And then there's people openly weeping to how beautiful that sounds when he says it. <laughs> oh man, the first time he played Ed Sullivan, <laughs> the had, girls went bananas. They had to film him from the neck up because of the gyrations of the hip. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> As he broke down his belief in cryptozoology. <laughs> oh, Darren, if you're listening to this, get on, buddy. We, we got to see you stuff. 
<laughs> you ain't nothing but a crib, dude. <laughs> yeah, he's our Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, so they send a, a like a, a full on battleship out to investigate. To their credit. And from the dock, Sarazawa, a new character to the film, watches somberly, uh, predating moody anime by several years. But this is a moody anime ass character. Um, <laughs> and it's like Sarazawa, proto moody anime ass character, right? Right. I mean, we are we're a ways off from Perfect Blue, but this character belongs in Perfect Blue. And uh, Sarazawa is he knows Amiko and we don't get too deep into the relationship yet, but there's something. And Ogata uh is like, oh, I see that uh Moody Sarazawa showed up to see you off. Huh. Did you ever talk to him about us? And she's like, hm, no. And uh that isn't encouraging if you're Ogata, I would think. Um, I'm not telling the people closest to, to me about you. Um, so then they go uh, to Odo Island. They tour some of the crushed homes. Uh, we also detect radiation for the first time. And they determine it's not fallout because the radiation is localized. And then Yamane is standing in a big hole and says, what would, what would you say if I told you we were standing in a footprint? And, oh, God, is like, the fuck you say? And then they Geiger countered the hole, and the radiation kind of spikes in there. And they also find a trilobite uh, in the same footprint depression. So, evidence is stacking up, Court, that what we might be dealing with here is, in fact, a Godzilla. The only way to cure a Godzilla is to send out a girl on a raft and sacrifice her i'm telling you we have to do it we have to make japan great again it's too late court because immediately thereafter a dude is hammering a bell and people start uh fleeing and uh somebody in the odo crew is like hey godzilla's on the other side of that hill over there we better beat feet so of course uh yamane and uh, uh tanabe who is uh, another one of the scientists investigating um, head up the hill because they want to get a look because they're like and, scientists and they're like, fuck you. There's no such thing as Godzilla. We're going to prove you all wrong. <laughs> or like, I think at this point, Yamane's on board, uh, with the footprint and all, he's like, we are dealing with a Godzilla like creature, if not Godzilla himself. <laughs> and, uh, so I think he is on board with it. I, I think that, uh, Tanabe who, uh, I'm trying to think what he was. He wasn't a paleontologist. He was like, uh, um, I don't know. Not a meteorologist. Whatever doesn't matter. He's another scientist, but he did, he seemed a little more skeptical. Um, but then uh, over the hilltop, there appears Godzilla for the first time, uh, roaring his heart out, making me happy, making the world a better place. The very first appearance of Godzilla, uh, it it, it feels kind of special. Um, and it's a fun shot. Like it's a, a full on daylight shot of him. Just like, Hey everyone, it's Godzilla. Uh, uh, like I said, just roaring, uh, away, which is man, that roar is awfully good. And it hasn't changed, uh, substantially, which is even better. You know how they created that? 
I do not. Okay, this is this is one of my personal ones that I, I love the most. Uh, it's a contra bass, like the the big, not like a stand up bass, like you see a rockabilly guy slap, but like the bigger version of that where it takes two people to play it. The contra, okay. a really big bass. It's like super deep bass. They took a leather glove that was coated in a type of resin and then rubbed it across the strings, and the resulting noise is the Godzilla roll roar. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Every time I hear it, I want to get my hands on a contrabass and try and recreate that noise in some way, shape, or form. And the reason that it always sounds the like the same is a lot of the later films sampled this and just cleared it up and then would play it like that or they would do another recording of the same style to make that happen you know even on the same string i would assume and then they've just used that same one ever since or something similar that's fantastic i mean it's such a good sound though because it does sound like you would think a dinosaur roar sounds like you know even the jurassic park stuff you know is accurate i'm sure but doesn't feel right i think it's the otherworldly nature of the sound where it doesn't feel like anything you've ever seen before that the first time that you hear it i mean ever in your entire life it just has that that's not natural that's not right and now it's almost like a comforting purring noise for me as a matter of fact my main text message alert is that godzilla roar like the original 1954 version of it (laughs) So every time I get like a default text, you know, that's like not in my, you know, on a special list, it's Godzilla roaring every time. Yeah, I it, it like you said, it, there is a, an element of comfort if, if you grew up in a certain way, uh, like we did uh, clearly, <laughs> uh, which is to say poorly. Um, but no, Godzilla it, is an enhancement to your life. It, it doesn't. Yes. Or it's an enhancement. You're right. You're right. Without Godzilla, have been deprived. Pure and simple. <laughs> yeah, I. It really is one of those things that I, I feel like. Oh man, you never enjoyed, like you know, like Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Like you were never able to just sit down on a Saturday afternoon and watch that movie and and find the pure innocent joy of a movie like that, or. And it, hey, maybe that's not your flavor. How do you feel about turtles with rocket legs? Because <laughs> we got one of them too. Gamera is made with meat. <laughs> <laughs> Gamera is also a love of mine, and uh, Gamera always felt a little dumber to me. Uh, and it's it's certainly more cosmic than most of the Godzilla films, but. Gamera is kind of uh, like the Kmart version of Godzilla, really. <laughs> yeah, but also he, his method of flight was so bizarre to me that I was never not enthralled when Gamera was in motion. <laughs> of like, I don't know how he's doing that. I don't know, like, how does he see? I don't know. I got a lot of questions. We'll we'll worry about that when we cover Gamera. Um, <laughs> But uh, back in the movie, people are, are fleeing Godzilla. Um, Agata and Amiko are hiding, and then from higher ground, like it, it's just sort of a brief assault, a brief glimpse of, of Godzilla, and he's gone. But there's this amazing shot of them looking down into the bay. And uh, not Tokyo Bay, but kind of the 
Bay of Odo Island and its footprints and better yet, a tail print going back into the water. The compositing on the shot, too, when he's behind the mountain and the people are running away in fear, it still looks incredible. It holds up to other compositing done even digitally to this day. I mean, yeah, they have the mountain as a cheat line, but it still looks awesome. Yeah, it's, again, I mean, this movie, for all the the flaws of uh, aging special effects, like, there are a couple of times, especially in the later assault, where the head's moving around, it's like, oh, well, that's just a puppet, you know? Um, but it looks good, you know, like it, it looks convincing enough that the weight of it, like it doesn't undermine the weight of the story and the story itself is actually a pretty heavy one. I think it's because it's actually there. It helps that it's actually yes. there. Even if it looks a little ridiculous at that moment, even if you can see a wire leaving a missile right up to the eyeball before it gets struck, it's at least there and you see an actual explosion and it's not. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe it's because our eyes are trained to look for things that are actually there that the CG will tend to not, like, you know, both the, the Uncanny Valley part of it or whatever, where it just doesn't seem right. I don't know. I mean, they've gotten better with it with time, but they've also gotten lazier with it as well because people are just more accepting. Yeah. Have you seen Shin Godzilla? Yeah. And I actually did really like Shin Godzilla, but there's some moments in there with the CG where he looks googly eyed and even more fake to me and not believable than the 54 one. But they also do some model work in that. That's super impressive. Yeah. I thought it was actually CG city where they did a, a mat, like a plate of the city and then, you know, pulled portions of it out, but it's actually the models. And then they, you know, kind of augment it. That's where, that's where your sweet spot is. Use practical effects and then augment it with CG when it doesn't quite meet what you need and do your yeah. fire removal. Like, that's why the Millennium series of Godzilla, I mean, it's vastly unappreciated, but it's really good because they were doing some really inventive stuff like that where they would do wire removal and put things like that in there that's quite incredible where they would, you know, augment it or use it to com- like composite different shots or they would enhance explosions so they didn't have to, like, set the actor completely on fire like they did in this one. <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Some of the Millennium stuff's real good, and uh, I, I, I have my problems with Shin Godzilla's overall story, but I had a great time watching it. If you're vest- right. if you're interested in the bureaucracy of how a government would handle a monster like this, I think it's so realistic and believable. The dipl- the, the diplomatic nightmare that is modern day government, particularly in Japan, and and that while this Godzilla 1954 is an allegory on essentially America and nuclear weapons that destroy in their wake and the carelessness and monstrosity that is us. I mean, that's kind of what Godzilla is and what he represents in shit. Godzilla he's like a, well, it's like the nuclear meltdown that happened <laughs> at the, after the tsunami, whenever the, was it, what we, I would, was that that went down? I uh, Fukushima. Fukushima. I was, I couldn't draw the name out, but like, I think that one's more how they dealt with Fukushima and the, the failings of the government afterwards. It feels like that's what, well, Shin feels like I, I I know we're not necessarily talking about Shin Godzilla, but it is an interesting contrast because as I was watching this one, obviously this is a very anti-war kind of film. Um, Shin Godzilla is almost a an argument for why Japan should be able to militarize in a modern world, and and I almost saw Godzilla as more a terrorist attack than anything else because there's a, a scene in the in Shin Godzilla 
where uh, they're debating about what to do about, you know, spoilers for Shin Godzilla, but basically he comes on land as this big-ass mutant tadpole and eventually grows into Godzilla. Um, But during that process, they're like, we need to stop this thing. Like, it's going to kill a bunch of people. But we we aren't militarized. Like, we we still adhere to the old World War II-era demilitarization agreements. And they're waiting for the United States to show up to kill Godzilla. And and there is the argument made in Shin Godzilla that, hey, if we had our own military, our own standing military again, that was effective in a real way, then we wouldn't need to wait for the rest of the world to defend ourselves. Well, that and they should have the right to be able to do it, too, because they had yeah. to mission the rest of the world. And it was all this diplomatic nightmare that. Yeah, it's like I felt like that was as interesting culturally as as the original. Um, like it, I wish it were the movie that the original is in terms of, of just being that quality of film. Um, but it's filled with some fascinating ideas and, and a look at, at Japan's view of itself, much like, you know, Godzilla, the original Godzilla, uh, how Japan sees itself in, in the context of the world at that time. Um, Really fascinating, though, and I recommend it. If you're a Godzilla fan, watch Shin Godzilla. Um, where were we before we got high-minded? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Running away he's so, on the other side of the mountain and heading into the ocean. We see the footprints and the tail tracks. Right, so Rockstar Yamane is back at HQ giving a lecture on dinosaurs to a standing room only crowd and people are feigning. They're trying to gasp the air. <laughs> people are like knocking their knees together, hoping they don't notice them. <laughs> right he's <laughs> he, he's given everybody a uh like a, a quick lesson on the jurassic era and he says look we're just gonna call this thing godzilla because that's what they call him on odo island and eh whatever also uh we think he's about 165 feet tall um he uh he also proposes the theory here that like Hey, Godzilla and probably a bunch more like him were in some underwater cave system. The underwater H-bomb test destroyed the natural habitat. Then he shows off the trilobite and fucking lighters come out. (laughs) People are swaying. They're like, he brought the trilobite! (laughs) Was that Nate in the back there? She was super excited. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, everyone! Um, so, uh, so he shows off the trilobite and he's like, Hey, also the sand that we found in this footprint, not only was radioactive as shit, um, also the sand comes from, or it has the same composition that we find in Jurassic strata of, uh, of layers, you know, geological strata, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then he says, because Yamane is nothing but not thorough with his evidence. And he says that the radiation they detect was strontium-90, which was also how the, the resulting element uh, left over after an H-bomb test. And then there's a debate where uh, an old Japanese dude is like, well, we got to keep this under wraps. And then all the ladies are like, fuck that noise. People need to know. 
that there's a giant radioactive monster just off the coast of Japan. Sure enough, the women and 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 uh, cooler headed men uh, prevail, and now Japan is just once again living with this threat of like, hey, you know what? There's uh this thing out there that could just show up and fuck up our shit, and and that's where Godzilla really becomes such a parallel to, you know the u.s in world war ii probably of, the u.s because as their view of us changes so does the way that godzilla is perceived in their films yeah yeah and and it's kind of casual like there's a one of the more interesting moments that you won't see in like the 56 americanized version and that's what makes the original so good is there's this quick scene with a couple on a train and the girl is saying, like, I barely got out of Nagasaki, and now now i got to deal with this Godzilla shit? I mean, she doesn't say it like that, because it's 1954, but that's what she's saying. <laughs> and and they're just like, guess so. And it's a real kind of shrug, but that was also... Like, just imagine that. I mean, like, imagine how this country reacted to 9-11, which was certainly a tragedy. But it ain't no Hiroshima. And it ain't no Nagasaki. Yeah. And it's not an entire city versus a couple of buildings with thousands of people. It's they suffered an entire city with damn near millions. Yeah, Hiroshima alone was seventy thousand people killed instantly. And then two hundred thousand people died of radiation related deaths. Uh I mean that's and and that's not the firebombing that was going on, you know? That this is that's, this was the capper. Right there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean we'll talk about when we get into Godzilla coming into Tokyo, but um but I mean imagine the psychology of that of how do you as a society ten years on, this movie is ten years after uh that that bomb dropped, then like I think it's interesting to see this movie even try to capture a, a character saying, uh, you know, I was there at Nagasaki and now this. Like, how it to me, it's this weird insight into dealing with the casual knowledge that that's just part of the fabric of your life. Is that, oh, I was there the day that tens of thousands of people were incinerated, you know? Um, that that's your cultural touchstone for generations. I mean, good Lord, there is a reason that all anime is dystopic and apocalyptic. It is all because so much of, of modern Japanese culture still stems back to the events of World War II. And uh, anyway, it just blows me away that there's this little moment in this, you know, theoretically campy monster movie where you see a character genuinely responding to the idea of, you know, the city's destruction by like, I've seen it, you know, <laughs> like I've lived through this before. It's not cool. I'm not happy about it, but I'm familiar with it. And, and there's something culturally interesting to me about that moment. And it comes back. Um, anyway, so we've set up this disaster response center. Uh, Yamane et al. Are, are setting this thing up. And uh, people are just lying in the halls. There's reports and complaints. Um, and Yamane is giving coordinates because they're going to drop 
depth charges to try to basically drive off Godzilla. Uh, maybe kill it, but, you know, Yamane doesn't have much hope of that, that of, of killing it. And we, it turns out, doesn't really want to. So then um, we've got uh, ships sailing to stirring music. This was a real, like, men sailing uh, kind of scene, a, a, a montage of sorts. And then they, uh, then they launched the depth charges. And I'll, I'll, another thing I really like about this movie, it goes at a clip. Like this movie, it, it, there's a moment in the second act where it slows down to do all the Sarazawa stuff. But kind of from jump, like, you know, your first glimpse of, of Godzilla proper is about 15 minutes in. At about 30 minutes in, we're dropping depth charges on him. And and then the last 20 minutes is just devastation. So, anyway. Well, again, it's coming. <laughs> um, so, uh, Amiko, Yamane, and Ogata are hanging out at home watching the news reports. And Yamane's all upset. And uh, Ogata explains that this is because, as a zoologist, Yamane doesn't want to see Godzilla killed. And uh, uh, Amika goes to him, and but he's like, I want to be left alone. And also turn off your light, because i got some serious moping to do. <laughs> I can't mope around in the dark listening to Morrissey when you keep turning on the light. You're ruining the mood. Right, yeah, he's listening to Kaiju in a Coma. <laughs> that would be a happy song if the Kaiju was in a coma, because then it would just be resting. <laughs> <laughs> it's serious. Girlfriend, uh, Girlfriend Stomp by Kaiju, oh, I think it's really serious. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, th- that's what I love about this show, is that, yes, it's all about Godzilla, but there's always time for a Morrissey reference. <laughs> um, so then we cut to downtown Tokyo, like bustling downtown Tokyo, alive with commerce and <laughs> people getting into cable cars, <laughs> moving around in them. <laughs> Pleasure cruises. Uh, cause that's what we cut to. We see a model ship. Um, and they're on a pleasure cruise and it's the girl from the train. The one that was like Nagasaki and now this again. And then Godzilla just rises from the water and doesn't really do anything. Just shows up and then just kind of dives back down and, but letting everyone know like Godzilla is kind of putting Tokyo on notice of like, I'm here now. Like Odo Island, I the, <laughs> them waters is played out. I'm uh, I'm on to new pastures, and so Yamane shows up at the disaster response center because now the shipping lanes are in jeopardy because if Godzilla's in Tokyo Bay, well, you know, Japan's an island and they need ships, uh, bringing stuff in and and taking stuff out, and uh, so they're like, look, we just got to kill this thing. And there, so they ask Galmane, how do we kill Godzilla? And in a totally rocking line, Yamane says that it's impossible and quote, Godzilla was baptized in the fire of the H bomb and survived. What could kill it now? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a total. Yeah. <laughs> Guitar solo <laughs> moment. That's, that's where you hit that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and so Yamane's play here is like we can't kill it. What we need to do is is try to study it because clearly it knows how to survive an H bomb blast. And I don't know if you guys read the papers, but we got hit by one of them about a decade back, and it would be nice to know how to deal with that. Yeah, we're not and, at surviving the H bomb. Maybe we have something we could learn from this Godzilla before we try to kill it. Right, and and this introduces or begins to introduce the one of the themes of this movie which is the idea of what is the role of science in in a situation like this and yamane is a a pure pacifist he does not believe godzilla should be killed but should be studied partially for reasons of hey i don't think we can kill it but also because he believes that this is a living creature and uh, isn't doing anything out of malice. Uh, it's just doing it because it's an animal. And it's also and, preservation because he could possibly be the last of his kind. And if they destroy the last of his kind, they will never see his like again. So if they can right. or contain it in some way, shape, or form, they should try that first. Exactly. It, it, it's, he, again, being a man of science, a man of pure science, not not looking at the commercial aspects of this and that kind of thing. Um, so we cut over to a newspaper and a reporter named, uh, Hagiwara is sent to talk to Sarazawa, who is the moody guy with the patch that we saw last seeing Amiko off. And, uh, Amiko speaking of Sarazawa, Amiko and Agata are talking about him. And Amiko says, you know, I see him as kind of an older brother and the reporter, Hagiwara, shows up and is like, hey, I know that you know Sarazawa. I tried to talk to him. He won't see me. Will you go with me and introduce me? And uh, Ogata says that, hey, I'll go too. But Amiko is like, look, I'm about to tell him that you and I are going to be a thing. And he may not take that super well. So you just chill here. And again, paraphrasing. It was 1954. It's not the language they used. But Ogata is like, that's cool. I'll hang out here. Uh, I, In fact, I'm going to go to your dad's place, Yamane's place. And uh, with Shinchiki, who is the kid from Odo Island, who's, uh, I guess, the rest of his family just got eaten or stomped. Or a combination of the two. Or stomped and eaten. Maybe he likes or, food. <laughs> he was in a panini mood. Yeah, it's like a human falafel, you know, it's just <laughs> flattened out and then eaten. <laughs> oh, this would be so good with hummus. <laughs> I know I'm in Japan, but who's to deny a good hummus? <laughs> you mentioned, too, that, like, uh, Sirozawa's kind of withdrawn and he would not talk to reporters. He refuses to be interviewed and that reporter's kind of using a, a way in. He's kind of like the Tom York of scientists where he refuses to be interviewed unless it's like through the screen or a jar of mayonnaise or something weird. Right, right. It, it You know, he, he's his eye is fine. The patch is just an affectation. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's not true. So, so he can see the world in the, the, the mono view of everyone else who doesn't have his insight and depth. <laughs> oh, boy, that's some Sarazawa shit right there. <laughs> then, then he plays his own song <laughs> that he's composed about oxygen destroyer um, which is the name of his band oxygen destroyer so he wrote a song about his own band of, of 
Yeah, and and the title uh, or the uh, the first release off the album is just called "My Notes Die with Me." <laughs> and now, now I kind of picture it as the song in um, Suicide Club. <laughs> because the dead shine shine on. God, that movie is good. God, we're so off the rails on this one. <laughs> Uh, see previous episode of Hero Hero Go Show for more about Sion Sono's Suicide Club, one of the greatest movies to ever be made. Um, so, all right, let, let's head over to Sarazawa's research lab where he is, uh, plucking at an electric guitar. No, not really. <laughs> He's, uh, he is denying that his work is about killing Godzilla. Like, uh, uh, Hagiwara is like, hey, maybe you can help. And uh, and Sarah's always like, hey, my current work is even worth talking about. Just, I, I'm sorry. I wish I could help you, but I got nothing for you. And so Harigawa uh, fucks off, <laughs> has nothing, it has failed in his task to find a story. But uh, Amiko stays behind. And um, in the early goings, one of my notes was, does wearing a patch make you an automatic villain? I I think we've been conditioned that a patch means villain and Sarazawa is clearly not. I, I think an eye patch indicates that you've had either an eye trauma or have lost an eye and you need to keep the socket clean so you cover it up. Yeah, but it also says to me I have a lair. <laughs> well, I guess it depends upon which version that or, you know, like what type of person you're dealing with, because like they call her one eye, you know? I mean, she had a patch, but that's because she wouldn't put out for a John and her, her pimp stabbed her in the eye and she's getting revenge, but she's kind of the hero of the film. Yeah. And, and in a weird way, Sarazawa is kind of the hero of this film. Um, I mean, plot wise, yes, but I mean, in a weird way, the movie is kind of about his philosophy. Um, but anyway, so Amiko stays behind while, uh, Harigawa fucks off. And uh, she says, hey, what have you really been working on? I know you're not telling him, but, you know, hey, it's Amiko. Hey, he uses hey. feminine wiles, right? <laughs> right. She's like, hey, this is Miko here. <laughs> I'm, Look at me. I'm cute and adorable. Tell me all of your life secrets, and I promise I won't sell them. <laughs> right. I, I, I promise I will never, ever tell anyone ever what you're working on and you can take that to the bank that is an amico promise now talk directly into this flower that looks nothing like a microphone on my lapel right that says to ogata <laughs> um so in addition to wearing a patch uh sarazawa also has a secret lab which is also suspicious and he takes amico down to a secret lab and it's a bunch of test tubes and machinery and a tank of fish but Amiko looks impressed, so God bless her. I'm glad she, she she's happy for her friend. And then there's a real hazy reveal here. And like we get the real reveal later. All we know is that something happens in the fish tank. All the fish are dead, and Amiko is upset. And then she goes home looking rightly bummed. And... Uh, Ogata is like, hey, you, what happened? You don't look great. And she's like, nothing happened. And there's a really nice shot of Ogata and Yamane in the foreground and her tying an apron on in the background. Uh, 
when you see the shot, you'll know because it's just framed perfectly. It's uh, Honda again being a really good director, which he is all through this movie. Um, so they settle in for some sake, and then an air raid siren sounds, and Ogata and Yamane leap into action. But uh, not before Amiko has time to tell him, like, hey, I, I didn't have time to tell Serizawa about us. And he, he gives her that winning Ogata smile and shakes her shoulders a little. And I was like, that is the most non-intimate, intimate act I've ever seen. Of just like, it's okay, kid. Let me give you a good, firm shake. In 1954, that was pretty forward. That was pretty much like they just had sex right there in front of us. Right, yeah. Yamane is just looking aghast. Hey, I just thought of another eye patch character that's actually a good person or a good character in a film. Uh Yaguju Bay played by Sunny Shiba in uh, Shogun's Samurai and a few other movies. Yeah, I I think it I think it's a western thing. I think if you're in an eastern film and have an eye patch, you you're probably a good guy. Yeah. And if you have an eye patch and are in a western film, you're probably the villain. Well, there's a few eye patches in the eastern side too where they're bad guys. I think it's more or less like You've seen some shit, and that's just a shortcut on the eastern side to say this person's been through some shit and they've survived it, so don't mess with them. Yeah, there's a lot of like Ronin with eye patches throughout Asian cinema, and I think a lot of times too in uh, in a lot of at least the martial arts and uh, you know samurai movies that I've seen, uh, you know from from Japan and such, it's always been someone with some type of a disability will always overcome it and become more of the hero, even though they have something that puts them outside and makes them different than everyone else. It's almost like a special trait. So an an eye patch is like a a, a significant thing, meaning that this person is more powerful than what you would automatically assume, like the fear of the little girl versus a big giant scary monster that we have in our films. You know, it's, it's what you don't know about this thing that makes it more terrifying and what you don't know about this person with the disability, you know, and what they're capable of doing on top of just maybe missing an arm or, uh, at an eye or whatever it might be. Now I kind of want to watch Blind Swordsman Zaraichi. <laughs> See, and, and I'm th- I'm thinking of like One Armed Swordsman and stuff like that. Like I yeah. Chinese film and stuff, but still, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so many good ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I guarantee you I'm probably going to be popping out uh, Shogun Samurai sometime this weekend because I just thought of that and I love Sunny Chiba as Jubei. <laughs> yeah, I I uh have a Sunny Chiba directed film on my short list of things to watch uh called Yellow Fangs in which a giant bear attacks people. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. I know. I know it does and I haven't watched it yet, but I I will shortly. I got I got caught up with uh uh Space Battleship Yamato um which I had been wanting to see for a while. You had and bear, um, but you also had me at Sonny Chiba directed. <laughs> right. Sonny Chiba directs a movie where people fight a bear. <laughs> please I, please stop. I can only get so erect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it doesn't go away in four hours, that's appropriate because Sonny Chiba directed a movie where people fight a bear. <laughs> and you're just going to have to live with that. <laughs> yeah. That's just the world you live in now. Um until you see it. I, yeah, I've got to watch it because it, like, it could be terrible, but how could it be? Um, anyway, so uh, what's going on with Godzilla again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we got an air raid siren. He's fighting a bear. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I know. That would be amazing. 
Godzilla versus Barugan. <laughs> They've never done that where Godzilla fights a giant bear-like creature. The closest would be uh, in uh, Mechagodzilla, the, the dog-looking uh, creature that everybody hates. I forget his name off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. King's yeah. King Cesar. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Like, he's the closest thing to a bear they've had because he's kind of furry. <laughs> yeah, that was a real dumpy looking kaiju. Oh, I still like King Cesar. I, I'm... He's the one with the big knife nose, right? No, no. He's uh, he's the one that like lives inside of a rock just off the shore of one of the islands. And he's like the secret protector that they all pray to. And... What is the one in... Is it in Mecha Godzilla where he has to fight the one on the like Planet X or whatever? Do you know what I'm talking about? And it was the knife nosed, yeah, um, four legged monster. Kind of looked like a shark a little bit. I think that might be a Gamera monster. I don't think there was a knife nosed one in Godzilla. I, I know maybe it is a Gamera. There's a one. knife nosed one in Gamera, and I can't remember the name of it, but. Um, We'll get to what well, our, our top researchers will get to the bottom of this. Go on. I, I think you're kind of confusing uh, the actual Baragon, which has a horn in the middle of his head and is four legged, with uh, the knife headed one that's four legged from Gamera. <laughs> but yeah, King Caesar is the closest thing to a bear that we're going to get in Godzilla. So anyway, that wants to start photoshopping, get, you can start there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that, we should encourage that as much as possible. Um, putting bears into all sorts of movies absolutely oh man i i mean what what are we doing why are we not watching that sunny chiba movie right now? we could do a co- uh, i mean we could just switch over <laughs> all right pause here all right now. all right no because we're we're getting to the good yeah, yeah so godzilla is rolling up into tokyo bay and so from the shore we we see some soldiers uh firing machine guns um, Yamane is trying to get through and can't, and he's like, Hey, don't shine lights at him because that's going to piss him off. And you're going to draw Godzilla toward you. And you shooting those machine guns is going to do very little. And now we get to some good old fashioned stomping. It's Godzilla rolling into Tokyo, stepping on buildings, tail swinging around train comes through, crashes into his foot. He eats one of the cars uh knocks out a couple of bridges and then his work done the work being fucking things up <laughs> godzilla just strolls back into the bay not like not harmed by anything just got it all out of his system and immediately proposals are being made uh, for like, well, how do we defend against this? Clearly just machine guns and, and soldiers aren't going to do the trick here. <laughs> and so they say, well, we're going to put up a big ass Godzilla wall and we're going to make him pay for it. <laughs> yeah. And once again, Yamane gets an amazing round of applause. Um, no, what they're going to do is uh, string up basically barbed wire all around Tokyo Bay, and then electrify it. It's like these gigantic electrical powers that you see, like, you know, going across to try and transfer a lot of power over a large distance. Like, in very rural areas, you see a lot of these spread out, and they just kind of build, like, this electrical fence around it, like, around the city with it. It kind of makes me wonder if maybe the guys uh, that made the Troll Hunter movie, you know, that found footage one from a couple... Yeah. It makes me wonder if their idea of having the circular 
thing to keep out trolls in the populated areas of Norway if they maybe borrowed it from this movie. I, you know, would be surprised. I mean, you can certainly see the influence of Godzilla in lots of films, but uh, mostly other Godzilla movies. But, <laughs> you know, still. Um, I mean, and, no, in fairness, that like this is the first honest-to-goodness kaiju film. Uh, I, I looked around. The, the only other one uh, before this that was rumored was the guy who did the Godzilla suit had done a movie called... Uh, like it might have even been called King Kong on Oda Island. Um, but it turns out that it was not big King Kong. It was like just a guy in a gorilla suit, um, and not a kaiju film. So I think Godzilla, to the best of uh, my researches, um, uh, ability to provide me with correct information, um, the very first kaiju film, and in that respect. Good lord, sir. Like, oh, name me more influential movies uh, outside of, like, a Star Wars or something. Um, the only real influence that came before Godzilla, I mean, you got Mighty Joe Young, which influenced King Kong, and then King Kong was the granddaddy of everything, and it was King Kong that actually started making the Japanese filmmakers decide they wanted to do a giant monster because they wanted to try and compete with that. But they knew they couldn't do the stop motion. It wasn't practical for them. That's why they went with the suit. And nobody else can come anywhere near doing what the suit acting is done in Japan, especially with the model work, which is what really sells it. Their models are what make it actually believable and make it to where you think you're seeing a giant monster destroying cities. Now, I mean, listen to me in the later segment when I'm smarter. But I, if memory serves, uh, they are uh, that was called small motion. When they couldn't do stop motion, they refer to it as small motion. It sounds about right. I mean, that, that stands uh, where they make something look bigger than it actually is. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it really fascinating stuff. Uh, the, like, the story of Godzilla in itself is amazing. Uh, especially considering it wasn't very popular when it came out. Yeah, especially effects-wise. Uh, this is a monumental film that is the benchmark for all other special effects movies to be achieved in the future. Oh man, this movie is so good. Godzilla not only brought an allegory of atomic disaster with him, his was a roar that launched a thousand, or at least 30 or so other movies. Not to mention cartoons, lunchboxes, video games, comic books, I mean the list goes on. Love him or hate him, Godzilla is just part of popular culture. Thanks to recent movies like Pacific Rim, the word kaiju has become somewhat more commonplace. The word itself originated from a text of Japanese myths known as Shanghai Jing, or the classic of mountains and seas. The literal translation is something like strange beast, but it was Godzilla who made the term relevant to Japanese cinema. After Godzilla was released in October of 1954, it saw some box office success despite Japanese critics savaging the movie for being exploitative and insensitive in its treatment of heavy subjects like the effects of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan and the fishing boat incident and all that stuff. Nonetheless, the movie became the eighth biggest movie in Japan that year. Only King Kong vs. Godzilla would sell more tickets in the series in its native home of Japan. 
But it was in America that Godzilla received his first critical acclaim. But even years later, Ashiro Honda would lament the initial reception of his film in his home country, stating, quote, They called it grotesque junk and said it looked like something you'd spit up. I felt sorry for my crew because they had worked so hard. Honda also stated, at the time, they wrote things like, quote, this movie is absurd because such giant monsters do not exist, as if fantasy had not yet been invented. Now, that might have stung, but Godzilla was here to stay. While initially Toho wanted to do Godzilla as a stop-motion film, a quick accounting of Toho's finances and staffing suggested that stop-motion would be incredibly expensive and require years of work to pull off. So, the decision was made, a guy in a suit. And this would be referred to not as stop motion, but as suit motion. Now, the suit itself, because I know you're interested, was constructed of wire and bamboo, with latex layered on top of that, and then they, you know, did some texture work to create the scaly look. The thing was initially constructed by three people, Kanji Yagi, Koi Yagi, and Yezo Kaimai. The first version of this suit weighed about 220 pounds and would ultimately be worn by two different men at different times, uh, Haru Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka. The first time Nakajima wore the suit, he promptly collapsed under its weight, and many of the shots in the movie were actually accomplished with the top half of the suit worn instead of the full body, uh, where the shots allowed for that. Nonetheless, wearing the full body suit time to time, there was also a puppet uh, that they used for some close-up shots of the head and some of the fire breathing. But even with all that, Nakajima, poor Nakajima, lost 20 pounds during the film's 51-day shoot, not a fat guy to begin with he. So, following the, the financial success of Godzilla, and the later critical success of the original film... Toho realized they had something really special on their hands, and Godzilla would go on to spawn 27 Toho sequels, three American knockoffs, by which I mean Godzilla King of the Monsters, uh, uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla was repurposed for American audiences, as was Godzilla in 1985. There were also three original American films to date, and an impossible-to-count number of spinoffs, reimaginings, and straight rip-offs. Godzilla remains one of the most beloved and recognizable figures in popular culture, all thanks to a guy named Tanaka who happened to have an affinity for American monster movies and a little spare time on a plane from Indonesia. And, and folks, I got to be honest with you. Doing this work on Godzilla has been so much fun, and it's been so satisfying to dig in to the minutia of Godzilla, as, as I hope you've seen on this show. Moving forward, we're going to have a new segment on this show. That segment, uh, as yet untitled, again, give me a shout and uh, let me know if you have any thoughts on it, um, is going to be uh, a segment mentioning, discussing a little bit uh, the next Godzilla film in order. That's right. I'm going to watch every Toho Godzilla film in order of release. So uh, each month, we're going to set a little time aside just to briefly talk about what's going on with the big guy uh, while we talk about some other uh, Asian horror films. So, uh, shall we? How do you feel about that, guys? I'm open to suggestions, but quite frankly, after watching a few Godzilla movies recently, I really want to do it. 
So, um, let me know. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you have a title in mind. Let me know if you have some artwork, whatever it is, your thoughts on Godzilla. Uh, let me know. Uh, I'm, I'm in a place where I, I can't stop thinking about how much I like Godzilla. So, join me, won't you? Now, back to the show. So, all right, so we're montaging now, and neighborhoods are being evacuated, tanks are rolling in, like they're locking Tokyo down. Inside a power plant, they're testing shit, they're evacuating uh, certain districts uh, to to make room for the military, and also, because every now and again, Godzilla pokes his head out of the water. And Ogata says, uh, he, he tells Amiko, hey, I'm going to ask for... Yamane's consent finally. Like Ogata and Amiko, uh Okamiko? Would that be their combined name? Ogamiko. <laughs> um The Benefer of its day. Ogamiko. Um have not yet asked for Yamane's consent to be married. Yamane comes in, he is not looking great again. Like this like the whole Godzilla situation is really wearing him out. And uh, Amiko asks him uh, what's wrong, and he's bombed. And then he and Ogata end up debating whether or not to study Godzilla or kill it. And now that Godzilla has rolled into Tokyo and fucked up a bunch of stuff, Ogata is on the side that's like, we got to kill this thing. Like, there's just no getting around it. And Yamane kicks him out of the house and storms off. Uh, but he doesn't really wait around to kick Ogata out. Ogata just kind of sees himself out. But before he does, he grabs Amiko and he's like, look, I'll find the right time to talk to him and I'll, I'll, we'll get all this uh, straightened out. And then an announcement comes over the radio and they're like, Godzilla's coming back in, y'all. And then we cut to the wall uh, or the fence of electrical lines and Godzilla, show enough, is emerging from Tokyo Bay. Um, they start with a little artillery. Uh, you know, pepper him a little bit with some, uh, some shells. Doesn't do nothing. Godzilla rolls in. They hit him with the electricity. And he's getting zapped a little bit. They're hitting him with the con- conventional weapons. And then Godzilla lets him know what's up. Because we break out the atomic fire breath. And melt the power lines. Which is, I thought was a really cool effect, actually. Um, it looked like they just blow towards something, but it was cool. And they probably did. They probably used like a heat gun or something like that to melt the plastic or whatever it was made out of. And yeah, and there's a couple of, there's a couple scenes where the atomic breath is actually animated to make it look like it's more than what it is when it's not the light being shown through a fire extinguisher being blown out, like you said. And this is one of the ones where they kind of animated it and you see it melting at the same time. So I wonder if they kind of did a time lapse of it melting and then, you know, <laughs> melted it with a heat gun at the same time. It looks cool. And it's also the first time where Godzilla just lets the the fire breath rip. And it's the power lines, it's buildings, it's the fire trucks that are coming to put out the fires he just started. Uh, some tanks roll in, they fire, and, and that seems to bother Godzilla a little bit. So he just fire breasts them motherfuckers too, and they're done for. And, I mean, it is, and this is the, the element of the film where we start to see echoes of the firebombing of, of Tokyo, 
which um, if you are a historian like myself, you may uh, be hip to the knowledge that most uh, Japanese structures, uh, paper and wood, a lot of them are. And you throw fire into that mix and shit gets burnt. Um, the firebombing of Japan is, is, is truly one of the most like dead, like but long before the A-bombs ever hit, the firebombing was already incredibly devastating to that city, uh, to the nation as a whole. I mean, good Lord, Japan was just, uh, I mean, it was just on fire. The whole, the whole goddamn island was on fire at one point. It's like somebody's cow kicked over a fucking lantern in Chicago at that time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, so the scenes of the like Tokyo skyline in flames, again, not anything new, you know, in fact, one of the big complaints that people had about Godzilla when it came out was that it was exploiting uh, people's memories of the firebombing of Japan, as well as the, uh, uh, the A-bombs that got dropped. And, and yeah, so, you know, we see fires all over the city at the, at the HQ, the disaster response center, they're kind of aware that they're losing this battle. And again, echoes of World War II. They're seeing the city go up in flames and they're like, look, we're no longer trying to fight Godzilla. This is a rescue effort. We're just trying to save as many people as we can now. And in fairness, Godzilla at this point in the film is just this force of destructive chaos. It's just fire and demolition. There's this incredibly... Yeah, I hate to use the word poignant, but that's what it is. There's this moment in the in the film, like in the midst of all this chaos, in this sense of defeat. Like uh, throughout the film, there is a sense of like Japan, not Japan. I'm sorry, Godzilla. <laughs> My metaphor is showing uh, <laughs> that Godzilla has come into Tokyo, isn't going away, is destroying everything. They can't stop him. All they can do is hopefully, fingers crossed, get to a place where they can survive it. And in the midst of all this, there's this moment where we see a mother embracing her two kids who are crying. And she says, it's okay, we're going to be with daddy soon. That still rips my heart right out every fucking time, Bo. Every time. Right? It's like, man, I'm I'm trying to have a good time here and just watch a Godzilla movie. But 54 Godzilla is not that good time movie. It is this heavy film about war and its consequence. And and, and in particular, this moment of uh, of this mother, like, readying her children for death is incredibly emotional and incredibly somber. And one of the things that we've kind of moved past a little bit, because it's not as much fun to talk about, is the scenes of people that have radiation sickness or have been burned or have been the victims of Godzilla's wrath. Even before we got to Tokyo, there's a lot of that where we see like, you know, the rescue centers, there's a lot of people that are injured. They're out in the halls and they're dying and they're sick and they're ill. And that resonates so much of the footage that you've seen after the atomic bomb was dropped of what the people that were slowly dying look like, or even any other kind of nuclear meltdown that you would see like Chernobyl and, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen footage of that, but there's like a really famous uh, footage of this little girl screaming uh, no in Russian while she's being treated 
her radiation sickness and they're trying to give her shots and things to try and get some of that out of her system. And it's just really harrowing and all this stuff echoes when you see these people and their lives and their bodies just completely destroyed in the wrath of this beast that cannot be controlled or contained. And that's a perfect, perfect metaphor for nuclear weapons and war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, Yes, there is no question that Honda knew what he was doing. And, and I mean, is it exploitative? Maybe to a degree, but also it hit close to home because it was honest. You know, I think um, I think people who misinterpret what should be considered art as exploitative are the ones that were the most effective by it. And when they were affected by it, they resented the fact that it made them feel something they weren't ready to deal with. Any, anytime yeah. you get offended by something and you call it exploitative more than likely it pushed a button you didn't want it to, and you don't want to admit that as a human being. Um, to, to keep this movie on the downside, uh, so everyone at the headquarters is like, we got to go underground. We, like, we can't stay up here anymore. There's another good moment where there are some TV reporters on a tower trying to cover the devastation. And they're like, we're going to, we're going to cover this until we can anymore. And then they see some planes coming and they're like, Hey, planes are driving the rockets back there. Uh, and then Godzilla just tears down the tower. And, uh, and, and as the reporter goes down, uh, he just screams farewell, farewell. It's real. Like it's another one of those things that is, a little almost this side of campy, but it's also really harrowing. Um, and, and finally though, the plane seem or the rockets seem to drive Godzilla back into the bay. It always reminds me when the reporters yelling the farewell as he's plummeting to his death, more or less, it, it reminds me of the Hindenburg on fire and the man screaming, Oh, the humanity. Cause he doesn't know how to express the shock and horror. And, and it kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, it it's, I mean, again, like this movie doesn't shy away from the idea that, like, hey, nobody's having a good time when when Godzilla comes around. Um, he's not in this movie. He is not saving Tokyo from a larger threat. Um, it is just him destroying the city and loved ones and buildings and infrastructure and commercial shipping lanes and generally fucking the whole place. Well, up. he's the Fraggle, and we're the Dozers, man. <laughs> Yeah, oh man. Indeed. Indeed. That's a back of the box quote. Uh, Godzilla is the fraggle and we are the dozers. <laughs> well, all right, so to get to your your you know, your take on the the scenes of people with radiation, the very next scene is kind of amidst the the shots of the city just being in ruins. Um, that they're actually checking the children for radiation and there's actually a shot where a doctor points the Geiger counter at a kid, it gets a bunch of ticks, and he just hangs his head and shakes his head no, like, well, this fucking kid's dead. And it, again, this movie's so depressing. And if you're not looking at that, if you're not paying close enough attention, it's something that you just kind of gloss over. Like, maybe he's just like, oh, everything's irradiated. But if you think about it, that's a very small child, and the people that are most susceptible to radiation sickness and being basically screwed over for the rest of their lives are the ones that are still growing new cells like that. So yeah, that little kid's dead. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and so Amiko is uh, pitching in at the hospital. And when she sees um, Ogata, she finally spills the beans on Sarazawa's experiments. And we get a flashback to his uh, fish killer, which it turns out destroys oxygen and, and turns it into this fluid. And so Sarazawa was researching oxygen in all its forms, as he put it. And comes up with this process by which um, you can extract oxygen from water. It creates this very powerful energy uh, that he refers to as the oxygen destroyer. And he says that just a small bit of it could destroy all aquatic life in Tokyo Bay. And he doesn't want to reveal this experiment to anyone because he doesn't want to use it to kill fish. He wants to, to use it as an energy source to benefit the world, but it, he, the research isn't there yet. All he can do is kill fish. He's at the kill fish stage. He's trying to get to the energy stage. And, <laughs> He's at the kill fish stage. Right. Like on the clipboard, it's like step four is kill fish and step eight is energy for all mankind. But there's an arrow drawing down to it where they're like... Like five, six, seven, all of our question marks. Like, how do I get here? <laughs> right. It's it's a real underpants gnome scenario. Yeah. Deal underpants, take over world. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and so he says, I won't because and and he lost his eye clearly in the war, and he says before. I, I will destroy the work I've done before I let someone use it for destruction. So where Yamane was certainly pro Godzilla, uh, Sarazawa isn't pro Godzilla. He's just anti-war uh, or anti giving the world another weapon of destruction, anti-mass destruction in all of its forms. Yes. Yes. And, um, so Amiko goes back to Sarazawa later with Ogata in tow. And Ogata is like, hey man, we need this oxygen destroyer. And Sarazawa is like, I don't know what you mean. Oxygen destroyer? I've never heard of such a thing. And Amiko is like, look, I told him. And I know I said I promised I wouldn't. And then I lied. And then I did tell him. <laughs> but y- you have to understand... Godzilla. Drop the glasses, Clark. We know you're Superman. Just give us the oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and and uh and and Ogata to his credit is like, please forgive Amiko for breaking her promise to you. But you have to understand, she spent all day and all night looking at the devastation. And she thinks, like I do this oxygen oxygen destroyer um, can kill Godzilla and stop this. And I know your concerns, but really we need this. And um, Sarazawa is like, you know what? I can't do it. Hang on one second. I'll be right back. Nothing suspicious here at all. (laughs) And heads down to his secret lab. And Amiko and uh, Ogata are kind of looking at each other for a second. They're like, Wait a second. Didn't he say he was going to destroy all his notes? And so they run down to his secret lab and have to bust in the door. And sure enough, he's trying to burn all his notes. And they stop him. 
And Ogata actually gets hurt a little bit, gets a cut on his head or something. And Sarah's always like, man, I'm so sorry, but I can't, I can't reveal my life's work as a weapon. And then there's this real emo scene where Sarazawa wishes he, he'd never invented it. And that, you know, he, he's going to be this horrible, he, he has somehow become a horrible person. It, it's a bit like Oppenheimer and the, you know, I am become death destroyer of worlds and, and that kind of thing. And then uh, a news report comes on that is a choir of heavenly girls singing a message of hope amidst shots of people dying and destroyed buildings and suffering. And it's all this heavenly choir singing to you while you're seeing it. And Sarazawa is like, fine, you guys win. The little girls are adorable. I'll, I'll give you the oxygen destroyer, but I'm only going to let you use, use it this one time. And then he burns his notes and Amiko gets all teary eyed because she understands he is destroying his life's work for this one thing. And let's face it. Sarazawa is doing uh, an Ed Harris abyss mission here where he is like, this is a one way trip. Uh, like I'm the oxygen destroyer is going to kill Godzilla, but I'm going to die with it because only if I die, he makes the point. I can't live with the knowledge because I still know how to make this thing. And at some point, somebody will convince me to do it again because uh, you guys just talked me into it now because of the heavenly choir singing and all. And who's to say that won't happen again? And what if, like, what if I'm wrong? Like, you know, and, and what if it's just too easy to kill someone or kill a bunch of people? You know, it's the dilemma of nuclear weapons, well, right? If you really want to start getting into the symbolism of it, Godzilla represents war and the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan by America and America and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas what Sirizawa represents is the next thing that's even worse. If it's, if, if, nuclear proliferation and like the nuclear destruction that is wrought upon humanity is horrible. The next thing that will be found by a scientist that could be the oxygen destroyer, although it may have been invented much like a our fusion was done where they were trying to make a way to make energy. And then they just ended up creating a weapon out of it. You know, it's the same thing with the oxygen destroyer. He intended to make energy out of it, but couldn't get out of the kill fish stage and now they're going to make him kill an animal with it. <laughs> they have no other way of killing. It's the same thing. So what he is doing is essentially the honorable thing where he's going on a suicide mission to get rid of the bigger threat. The oxygen destroyer will be used one time to get rid of the war that is Godzilla. And once that is gone, we can move on with our lives. No matter how horrible this thing is going to be, at least it will end and that will be the last of it or so we hope. Right. Uh, well said. <laughs> That's better than I did it. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about this a long time since I watched this at like 15, 14, somewhere around there. Yeah, it, but it's, oh, it's, it's so good. It's like it's such a smart movie. And anyway, uh, so they use a Geiger counter to pinpoint Godzilla's location in the water. 
uh, Sarazawa asked for the, a diving suit, and they're like, you can't go. You don't know how to dive. And he's like, yeah, but I'm the one who knows how to work the oxygen destroyer. And uh, Ogata says, all right, well, if you're going, I'm going to go with you and make sure you're okay. And so they get in, in some old school, like, diving bell ass diving Did suits. you notice there were holes in the elbows of them? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see the holes in the elbow. I'll have to go back and look uh, at that. I, for sure... Uh, um, not in Sirizawa's, but the other guy that goes down with him, uh, he did have a few holes in the elbows or it looked like it was badly patched and the patch was coming off. I mean, they're clearly not underwater in the scene. They're just kind of animating bubbles over top of it to make it look like water and they're moving like it is. But if you look really closely, you can see like at least one of them has holes in the elbow. Yeah, it's, oh, it's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> I'm um, not faulting it. It's just one of the things that I noticed and I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, it's uh, Poe Buddy's nerfing, you know. <laughs> um, so, so good place uh, reference. Yes. Oh, I love that show. I'm glad that I was. I, w- I felt awkward because if I was going to say, I love that show, and then you're like, it's terrible. That's not where it was coming from. I would have felt horrible. <laughs> no, I think that's a very funny yeah. show. Uh, uh, so anyway, Godzilla. Godzilla is just shelling at the bottom of uh, Tokyo Bay, and um, he gets up and starts kind of stalking towards him. Uh, Serizawa starts activating the oxygen destroyer. Ogata floats up, but uh, Serizawa doesn't come with him. And Serizawa radios up like, hey, it's working, and I think this is going to kill Godzilla, and I wish uh, Amiko and Ogata well. And then he severs his lifeline, which is this great moment of kind of self-sacrifice. Again, you know, the the point of the film being that, you know, this guy is acting nobly to destroy the next worst thing we can kill each other uh, with. And uh, the water goes all uh, fizzy like it did uh, with the fish tank and the oxygen destroyer. And Godzilla pops up uh, for a final roar and then descends into a watery grave before becoming uh, a time-lapse Godzilla skeleton. And <laughs> turns out that the oxygen destroyer is made up mostly of Alka-Seltzer and time-lapse photography. Right. It is the same technology used in Teenagers from Outer Space. <laughs> oh, uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Alka-Seltzer and time-lapse photography. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, y- Yamane. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just can't stop picturing it now. The more I picture it, the more I'm going to laugh. Yeah, it's it, it very similar. I'll, I'll have to look and see which film was first. Who who, who stole what from who. <laughs> who? Who first um, used Alka-Seltzer and time-lapse photography to destroy down to skeletons. Yeah. Oh, Teenagers from Outer Space. What a movie. Um... Yamane, uh, they cut, you know, back to the boat and uh, after we see Godzilla's skeleton. And Yamane uh, does one more encore because he's got a little speech. And uh, he says uh, that he can't believe that Godzilla was the last of his kind and that if testing were to continue some other day, another Godzilla may appear. 
And, you know, it's a very watch the skies kind of ending. But, you know, more thematically, it's just like, hey, we keep, you know, <laughs> we keep setting off nuclear weapons. Something fucked up's going to happen. may not be a Godzilla, but it's going to be something. And seeing uh, our limits and seeing how much more power we can have to destroy each other, we will destroy each other. That's just the shortcut to what he's trying to say. Right. And then they uh, they mourn uh, poor Sarazawa who has sacrificed himself in the name of world peace and, uh, and the end we get a good old fashioned, the end, uh, on the screen and, uh, and there endeth, uh, Gojira. Uh, but sir, only two years later, the Americans, uh, decided the Americans, like I'm not one, the Americans. Um, I don't want to take credit for what we did to Gojira. <laughs> I don't want to be to blame for it. Uh, right. So they decide, hey, uh, this movie, because uh, Gajira actually came over and had a limited amount of success in, in the United States before it was remade. Um, and so they decided rather than remake the whole film, what they would do is they would get uh, noted television attorney Raymond Burr to uh, play the role of reporter Steve Martin, a wild and crazy guy. Excuse me! Uh, Yeah, he's... So they cut him into the movie in increasingly awkward ways. (laughs) It's so funky and bad. (laughs) Uh, So in discussion of Steve Martin meets Godzilla, it's important uh, to note this is not the... Last time, uh, the character of Steve Martin appears in Godzilla canon? Question mark. Americanized uh, American, canon, kind of. Uh, yeah, like the Godzilla B <laughs> films. So, but you have you have done the research, sir. Tell us about Steve Martin and uh, his. his like diehard esque run ins <laughs> with Godzilla. Okay, now in 1977, the infamous Schlockmeister and, uh, well, all around wonderful filmmaker Luigi Cosi did an Italian version of Godzilla. Were you aware of this? I, I have not seen it. I'm aware uh, of its existence. Exactly, me too. I know it, there's pieces of it out there that you can kind of see some of it, but there's, it has not been founded as kind of a lost movie. But what he did was he took. Uh, portions of the americanized version of godzilla king of the monsters mixed it together with like several other like giant monster movies of around the same time that were black and white cut it all together and made like this weird montage now he uses like parts of beasts from Twenty Thousand fathoms uh godzilla raids again uses bits of the 57 chronos uh 1961's the day the earth cut fire he he put some footage from there (laughs) all of that he throws some of that stuff into his version of Godzilla in 77 and then also uses some World War II proper World War II footage as well. <laughs> and also pulls some of the stuff out of the original Gojira that uh, was edited out of the King of the Monsters version and then did this weird colorization process that took like these various colored gels that they throw over top of the film while it's being projected to kind of colorize it and do this weird stuff. But he uses like an older negative of each of these things. So it's like this weird bunk version that he made. 
but that features Steve Martin as well. And then when Godzilla finally came back in the 80s, now it's the return of Godzilla is how it was released, I believe, over Japan. But when it was brought back here in Godzilla 1985, the American distributors that brought it over here went, you know how we fucked up the other Godzilla movie? Let's do that shit again with this one. <laughs> they- yeah, which I saw in the theaters. <laughs> I saw Godzilla 1985. Uh, opening weekend and uh, was disappointed. This was another one that I had caught uh, with the Steve Martin slash Raymond Burr version that I didn't even know. I, I was convinced. I was like, I know there's an older Raymond Burr where it's a colorized version of Godzilla with Raymond Burr that I had seen and I knew it existed, but I wasn't sure what it was or where it came from. And he's even more checked out and even more weirdly just pushed into the film for no reason and cut in. that makes less sense. And the <laughs> the superimpositions they do in the original Godzilla King of the Monsters are even worse than the 1985 version. But he shows up and it's like the idea is in the 1984 Godzilla is it's a reboot kind of thing where the original Godzilla was there. It existed. But all the other movies since then no longer exist in the 1985 version. And this is a new Godzilla because we didn't heed the warnings of the speech at the end. And that's where he comes back and. Steve Martin's back on the case as an older man. <laughs> He's retired or something along those lines. <laughs> and all right, well, so let's talk about the insertion of Raymond Burr uh, into this one. Well, but first, one last breaking bit of news um, for uh, a movie from 1969. <laughs> the knife monster uh, that I was thinking of is Giron, uh, which was in fact from the film Gamera versus Giron. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the quick uh, version of the story is uh, Giron acted as the guard dog of two brain-eating space women uh, the de- the last of a dead civilization on the planet Terra and lived in a special hangar under a stream at the Terran base. So, uh, yeah. I-, I had most of that right except for Godzilla. Um, <laughs> well, if you... If you like but, your kaiju movies taken a little more seriously than what ends up being the later Godzilla movies and then also the Gamera series, which goes off the rails right off the bat, in a, in a wonderful and, and silly, fun way. But uh, you might want to... Have you seen Daimajin? Have you seen those films? You might want to check those out. I have not, and uh, I, I, I should. Um, I don't know. You, you know, there's part of me that does like a serious kaiju film, but then I think of how much I love Godzilla versus the small monster. And I'm like, eh, that's what I want. You know, I want destroy all monsters. I want son of Godzilla as dopey as that movie is. I, I like, would it. you like to see uh, a giant Kaiju destroying feudal era, Japan, as opposed to cities? I am open to all uh, historical time periods. <laughs> well, there you go. That's what Daimajin is. He's like a, a giant statue. That's like a guardian of a village that comes to life to write, you know, or revenge a particular royal family, and you actually see him stomping on feudal Japan buildings and stuff like that. And they're trying to fight him with giant spears and things. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm into it. Um, so, all right, but but all right, back to Raymond Burr in in King of the Monsters here, because the way they insert him is that like, hey, there was a report of uh, a monster uh, in Tokyo, so we're gonna send you. Raymond Burr, a.k.a. Steve Martin, to go cover this because you're friends with Sarazawa, uh, who you may recall as the doomed uh, 
philosophically torn scientist who is not so philosophically torn in King of the Monsters. Um, <laughs> basically, Raymond Burr knows everybody. He knows Amiko. Uh, he knows uh, Yamane. He knows Sarazawa. He doesn't really know Agata, but he, he gets to know him. But anytime he interacts with these characters, it's him looking at the camera, maybe a three-quarter shot, but talking to someone. Uh, if, if you see someone else in the shot with him, like Amiko or Sarazawa, uh, their back is always to you so that we can insert a different actor. And then they dub over the Japanese actor responding to Raymond Burr saying not like not a translation of their lines, just American lines, not like just whatever we need them to say so that they're, it looks like they're talking to Raymond Burr. Yeah. They're ruining the narrative just to have, just to have a, a a white dude in the screen to have us be able to follow it because, you know, no one at that time would apparently be interested in a Japanese lead. Right. And I mean, in fairness, again, 10 years after world war two, a lot of animosity still exists. Oh, oh, come on. 20 years, 30. Well, there's still some today. Some, somebody's racist uh, grandpa is going to be around the Christmas tree yelling about <laughs> how he had to fight them back then. Right. The, getting shot down by a zero, you know? Um, yeah, it, so I like I understand why the movie is the way it is, but it also drains it. Like there's none of the stuff about Sarazawa being conflicted about using the oxygen uh, destroyer. Um, there's very little uh, other than Raymond Byrne narrating. You know, Doctor Yamane uh, wanted to keep Godzilla alive, and like the movie has an extra what fifteen-ish minutes of Raymond Burr just asking questions. And like when a scene is taking place, like the one of the ones that cracked me up is like the scene where, uh, they're talking about sending a rescue ship out to get the, uh, the first, the Aiku Maru, uh, the first ship that gets burned up. And it's just Raymond Burr standing on the back wall of the scene. (laughs) Yeah. Of just like, hey, my Japanese ain't so good. What are they saying? And it's like, ah, they're sending our rescue ship. He's like, okay, thanks. Got that, everybody? I'll be here to ask those kinds of hard-hitting questions. He looks right at the camera and goes, you understand that now? (laughs) Right. (laughs) With me, everyone? Yeah, it's like these people have a different word for everything, I know. (laughs) Um, See, his name is Steve Martin, and that's a Steve Martin joke. Uh, So... (laughs) So they insert him uh, in, periodically uh, throughout the film, but the movie itself is also like 15 minutes shorter than the original because they carve out all the scenes where characters talk to each other and debate the philosophy of what Godzilla represents and the whether or not they should use a, a, this incredible weapon against him even in the name of saving the city. They take away everything um, that's a, political, anything that's social, uh, any kind of like anti-war, anti-nuclear theme, all of the stuff that even makes it seem like Godzilla is essentially America because that's what it represents and what we did to Japan. They get rid of all of that and it just try to make it like giant monsters screwing stuff up. We got to destroy it. Everybody's on board. Let's just kill it. 
Yeah, it's a very generic feeling 50s monster movie. And which is a real shame because the original is much more uh, interested in making a statement. And um, I, yeah, again, I understand why it was done. It just, it, it stinks that some people think that's what Godzilla is. The original Godzilla movie is. Um, because the actual, you know, 1954 Godzilla is an incredibly powerful uh, movie in addition to being a movie where a monster, you know, steps on buildings. Um, it turns out, if you're invested in the characters and their lives, and uh, the movie is also smart enough to make interesting points about the goings-on of the film, um, that when monsters step on stuff, it it feels uh, weightier. It feels more dramatic. Well, how it actually before it was available here in the states as the original gojira like that was a big thing i remember it being i want to say like what 13 14 years ago almost or maybe at least 12 at least 12 before it was actually released over here in its uncut version and until then we were never able to see the original 54 version that was done in japan and, and actually how good it really was so most of us just automatically equated it to what we knew with the Raymond Burr version because that's all we had forever. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's a real it, it's a shame that it took so long. I'm glad it is finally available. And uh, listeners, I cannot stress enough how nice that Criterion uh, edition is because it includes both versions of the film uh, as well as a ton of special features and stuff. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton more to say about Godzilla King of the Monsters other than to say it's a real mess. If that's the only Godzilla you've ever seen, see the original. It's uh, way better. Um, it, there, There is something hilarious about watching King of the Monsters and all the, like, Raymond Burr talking to someone with the camera cheated behind them. And like, oh, Miko... It's good to see you again. And then they cut to Amico and it's the American dubbed, you know, ah, Raymond Burr, you're looking very nice. It's good that we're old friends. And, you know, it's just, it's the worst. The dialogue's real hammy. Um, a lot of the movie, uh, it really is Raymond Burr saying, what did they say? There, that happens frequently in the film. He never interacts, obviously, with Godzilla or anything. It's, you know... It uh, like he gets hurt when Godzilla rampages the city and ends up in the hospital where Amico is, and then they talk kind of, and then <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Occasionally he files a report back home, and they're like, "Stay on the story, Steve. <laughs> report back as soon as you can, and eat more salted pork." <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't mess with the Merchant Marines; they're filthy men. Well, I mean, we kind of have a tradition of doing this here in the states. I mean. This isn't the only movie that that sort of thing has been done with. I mean, look at the bastardized versions of the, the Santo films that K. Gordon Murray got his hands on and all the other films that he did as well. I mean, there's precedence for this kind of thing, and they've been doing it quite a bit. So it's not that shocking that it was done, but it's also kind of a travesty because it takes a lot of what the movie actually is and just turns it into something that it totally is not. And so the logical extension of that is the 77 version that Cozy did. And I'm hoping that someday somebody unearths that so that we can see what that actually looks like. Because 
that sounds like a mess <laughs> in like the most glorious way possible. Yeah, I I would love to see that as well. I you know, it like if you've seen the original 54 Japanese Godzilla, by all means if you want to watch King of the Monsters, do so. It's it's enjoyable. I it, it is kind of funny in comparison. The original it, like we've been talking about is it, kind of a heavy movie. Um and the like King of the Monsters is not. It, it it's I mean, it is reptilicus. Oh. Only, only uh, the effects are better. It's uh, not hard to make better effects than Reptilicus. That was a really badly done movie. Yeah, it, but also kind oh, of it's wonderful. entertaining to watch. Uh, That's all that matters is that it's entertaining. And sometimes, sometimes you just yeah. can't not look away from the train wreck that's unfolding in front of you. Sure, sure, and and we'll get to this. Like I said, uh, moving forward on this show. Um, my, my love of the Kaiju film, uh, is going to get a little time on every episode where we just, uh, we just check back in on, uh, what, what the big G is up to, uh, episode to episode, uh, as we work our way through the series worth noting, uh, there are about 27 Godzilla films. If my math is right, not, uh, I don't, I don't think that counts the, 2014 version maybe i don't know i'll have to do the you know we'll get to them all but um yeah i mean man i mean godzilla is the roar that launched a thousand films it it, it's i i don't know that you can overstate how important godzilla is to cinema even as parody like it is such an iconic thing that even if you've never seen a Godzilla film, you know who and what Godzilla is. Well, even like a kid who's never even seen more than just maybe a photo or two of Godzilla can do like the roar, no problem. Everybody knows it. It's become cultural zeitgeist at this point uh, over the world. Yeah. Like Godzilla is so iconic that just tacking Zilla onto something makes it monstrous. I.e. Bridezilla. <laughs> Mozilla. No, wait, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Mozilla. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's an amazing film. It, it, it It's depressing, <laughs> but also wonderful and, and has a lot to say. Uh, and then Godzilla King of the Monsters has Rainbow. <laughs> That's really the best way to describe the difference between the films. <laughs> one is with Raymond Burr, and the other one is an amazing achievement of cinematic glory. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is something like um, watching watching Godzilla today. It, it does. It still feels. I mean, it's certainly of its time, but it feels contemporary in that it's a movie that has a very clear message and and is not shy about making it. You know. Uh, about delivering it in a, in a way that was uncomfortable to viewers at the time. I mean, uh, uh, Godzilla was not popular in Japan until it was well-reviewed in the United States. And then Japanese critics were like, oh, okay, I guess maybe there's more here. Because they, they wrote it off as an exploitation film for its depiction of, of the destruction and and said it was kind of a dumb monster movie that was just using these hooks to uh, shock people. 
and it wasn't until um it screened uh over here um that a lot of critics i think it might have been the village boys my question mark um may have been one of the first uh reviews that was like oh no this is legitimately a piece of art and japanese critics kind of revised their opinion of the film and and it certainly became you know a, a popular institution in japan as well as in the in the states but it took a, lo- a little while to get going and uh and the us good old us of a stepping in to help make godzilla uh, a real thing so hey you may have fucked up uh king, king of the monsters america but you also uh reviewed the original well enough that japan was like all right we, we'll keep doing this so um you know <laughs> bitter with the sweet the united states um came out uh kind of neutral this episode <laughs> Not that we're keeping score, but... <laughs> That's what we do, though. We fuck things up and then make it better all at once. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, the United States is, uh, uh, you know, the 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 mixed-up kid you love to hate. Um, oh, look at that. He destroyed that barbecue, but he made art out of it. <laughs> right, but, but you know what? He's going to buy you another one, and it's going to be better. <laughs> I shit um, in your fridge, but here's a new one. <laughs> yeah but here here's a better fridge uh we liked our old fridge <laughs> not anymore this one has wi-fi connectivity so the government can spy on what you do with your fridge yeah this one has alexa <laughs> who is listening to your every word and report back to the cia yeah. <laughs> That's why I wear the tinfoil, man. They can't get at me that way. <laughs> we're, we're stepping towards Alex Jones territory. <laughs> <laughs> um, any uh, any parting thoughts here on uh, on our old pal Godzilla before we uh, bring this one in for a landing? Uh, just that the overall series of films is still some of the most crowning achievements of special effects. And while people may try and deny that, I would say try and build your own city like model city and destroy it and see how good yours looks. I've done it court and it didn't look good <laughs> at all, but it, I, I still uh, found it incredibly. Satisfying. I would lot. I said that I didn't uh, do it as a kid building it out of cardboard, running around screaming and pretending I was a giant monster, smashing it later. <laughs> I, uh, I just recently picked up a, a VR game that is essentially this. Oh. It is. Yeah, it is stomp around a city, pick up fire trucks, eat them. It's it's everything you want to get. Now like that's that you get me into VR uh, right there. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah it's fun. Um, man, uh, before I cut you loose, pimp your shows one more time. You've been such a delight. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, I, I make it sound like you came in with a little song and dance. <laughs> I kind of did. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. But I appreciate that. I like entertainment. I'm a vaudeville. Oh, and I as well. I think that's why we get along so so well, Bo. But uh, we're proud members of the Legion Podcast Network over at Cinema Psyops. You can find us legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops. We also have a Facebook group for Cinema Psyops where you can post all of your alternative photography. Look at all the demented weird things that end up happening because of the show. People get influenced and post weird stuff. We have PSYOP news that gets posted there that we then report on in the show with lots of sound clips and also horrible things that people say taken out of context. 
Uh, it's just a good old-fashioned fun time. Picture like a mad scientist who experiments on an unwilling test subject, and the resulting experiment sounds an awful lot like uncontrolled morning radio, morning zoo-style radio. That's kind of what our show is. Perfect. I, 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 honestly, I don't know how you sell a show better than that. Um, all right, folks. Uh, we will be right back with uh, a few parting thoughts. And uh, one last thanks to Court uh, from Cinema Psyops. And uh, thanks, oh, man. Anytime Appreciate you need it. somebody to talk Godzilla, I'm your man. All right, folks. Uh, that is my discussion with uh, Court uh, quote cinema psyops. Um, that was a, a super fun time. I, 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 again, cannot recommend Godzilla enough. I, I hope you enjoyed our discussion of the film and I hope more importantly, you walk away from this, maybe knowing a little bit more, uh, about Godzilla than you knew before, or, or maybe just ignite a little bit of, uh, appreciation for a movie that, you know, gets lumped in with uh, the later films where, you know, Godzilla is go-go dancing and, and having kids and, and fighting uh, Mothra's. Um, but the the source material, the original OG Godzilla, is, is truly one of uh, the more affecting like horror films of its time. Um, not just a giant monster movie. It, it, it had had so much more to say uh, until, you know, Americans got their hands on it. So... Um, that's it. Thank you again for listening, folks. Uh, drop me a line. A um, couple of places. You can go over to the uh, the Facebook page for Hero Hero Go Show. Um, drop in. Join the, join the conversation over there. We drop in some music and, uh, and, and news and tidbits about Asian horror uh, over there. Uh, or you can hit me up at bo, B-O, at legionpodcasts.com. Uh, and drop me a line. Let me know what you think of the show, what, what you would like to see. Um, definitely have some things uh, coming up that I think everyone will enjoy. But uh, let me know. Give me, a, give me a shout. Say hey once in a while. Why don't you? Um, and uh, then we don't have a Twitter, a, a discreet Twitter account yet. We might do something about that. At any rate, uh, ladies and jelly spoons, um, that's going to do it for this time around. Uh, thank you one last time. Uh, for listening. And now, a little BTS. Good night, everybody.
on the top. 